Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the CityWire Ratings Radar Show. Uh, joined as usual, uh, I'm Richard Lander, sorry, forgot to say that, by Nisha Long, Angus Foote and Frank Talbot. Uh, and we're going to be looking less at performance these days, although we will, uh, this week, although we will mention it, and more at flows. Uh, and we're going to start off with Frank, because he's, he's been looking at flows into the global equities sector. Uh, and then uh, Nisha will follow on from that. Uh, so, welcome, Frank. Take us away. What's been happening in this sector? Yeah, hi there. So, yeah, definitely looking at what's going on, primarily because it's the category taking in the most money. Typically, that's usually the case because it's also the biggest, but it's quite notable how big the difference is and where exactly within global equities the money's going to. So, the sector picking up the most new cash year to date is equity global blend sector. Sometimes people refer to these funds as, as core strategies, but effectively, they don't pick a side between value and growth. You know, overwhelmingly, this is the most popular sector in terms of flows. Year to date, it's taken 45 billion euros, nearly double the nearest category, uh, which is the other bond sector. People clearly just trying to flee traditional parts of the fixed income market. So it's very much a catch-all for fixed income that in many ways, you know, going with a blended approach has been the best place to have your money over the pandemic. Yes, growth rallied hard from, from market bottoms for six months, but then value took over in earnest for six months. And, and lately it's been very mixed. Uh, it also strikes me as the best place to have your money going forward. You know, there's so much uncertainty about the path out of this. How well will economies do? What will inflation look like? It's very hard to say that one style is going to win out in those market conditions. I think it's going to be bumpy for a while, basically. Equally, equities you know, still look like the best place to have your, your cash with inflation concerns. So the more defensive global equity portfolio seems a pretty smart idea. I should add that funds in this category are flexible. They're going to stray between value and growth. They're not just going to wed to one of them. Um, you know, I just want to flag up one portfolio here. The, the Brooks Developed Markets Fund run by A-rated Jamie Grimson and A-rated James Hambry. This fund has actually decided to go off-piste but not to the detriment of returns. It's off-piste in that it weights much more heavily to Europe and the UK than a normal global equity fund would. It's clearly where they are seeing the opportunities. Yes, they have a domestic bias, but they have doubled your money over the past two years. Very impressive. Punchy portfolio too, 40 stocks, some punchy plays as well. It's got 9% plus 500, uh, which is an online trading platform you may have seen advertised. I certainly have. So that's a gross stock. Also, it's got some real value plays in there. It's got Jet2 Holidays or Major Shell and BP. It's got uh, Acceleral Metal, <laughs> the materials company, um, which has rebounded really sharply. I like this fund. It's genuinely exploiting the differences in the global landscape between countries. Very happy to shift around positions as and when they see the opportunities like they did in the pandemic. Uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's it. So thanks for that, Frank. You, you mentioned that these are very flexible. Do do they actually uh, vary the mix a lot on a tactical basis, or do they set their policy for six months, three months, or whatever? I mean, I think they they don't want to be encouraged to turn over their stocks too often. You know, no no portfolio is going to say, "Listen, I'm racking up transaction charges." Uh, but but the nature of a flexible portfolio, you know, with value and growth, the way they've moved over the past decade. You pick one side and you stick to it. These things don't change overnight, you know. The the and and we've seen a, a rotation towards value, but now we've seen that switch back. I'd say there's a lot more movement going on normal than normal rather in this in this kind of area. So that's a long-winded way of saying 
they're tactical. You know, they're, they're, they're going to move it around as and when they see the opportunities. But as you say, I mean, you know, you've got to keep transaction costs low. Are there any signs that these funds are racking up too much in costs? Yeah, I don't have the answer to that. And it's certainly something to look into. You know, does a flexible fund naturally incur higher higher fees and transaction costs? I, I would suspect the answer is probably yes. Right. Okay. Uh, Nisha, over to you, because you've looked a bit wider at flows, uh, because Q3 is, has just ended. And uh, so, which funds and sectors are taking the most money mm. over just- that quarter? Yeah, it's more the individual strategies that I've looked at, which have taken in the most money in Q3. Um, so, you know, as Frank was saying, the majority of the money has gone through to equities on, you know, on a sector level. But on a individual strategy level, the top funds are actually that have taken in the money are bond funds. Um, so, the top individual bond fund which has taken in the money is Allianz Income and Growth Fund. Um, well, this is a mixed asset fund. So, it does have around 65% in bonds um, and it's taken in about $2.8 billion, um, which to me is quite surprising. And that is because the star manager of the fund, um, City YA rated Doug Forsyth, has announced recently that he is leaving Allianz as of um, March 2022. Um, But even though he's announced that, the money is still coming into the fund in droves. Um, So, he was one of the um, um, flow takers in H1 of this year, and that's continued into Q3 this year. I thought there would be a slowing down because he is leaving. But they must have have, you know, a good succession plan in place. Um, the new CIO, who is Justin Cass, is working alongside Doug Forsyth already. So, maybe investors are encouraged by that. Um, and the strategy is still doing what it is supposed to be doing. So, um, it's good to see the money still going into that fund. Um, I have to admit that it is um, the 65% in bonds is almost an equity proxy because it is in high yield and convertible bonds where, you know, you are finding the yields at the moment and the rest is in equity markets. But they've done pretty well, you know, as a team. And going forwards, as I said, it's um, yeah, quite surprising that it is still taken in. And I think it does buck the trend of a star manager, you know, leaving or announcing, you know, leaving, but is still, you know, hoovering up the assets, which I think, you know, is quite different to what I usually see. So it's not really your uh, your grandfather's bond fund, is it? As you mentioned, no. yeah. I mean, how how how's the bond bond sector in general in in terms of inflows? Yeah, in general, I haven't looked at the sectors in general, but um, the majority of the funds that you do see in outflow mode are some of the bond funds at the end of, other end of the spectrum as well. It's not just at the top; you do have the bigger funds taking in a lot of money, um, but you have, for example, the Templeton. Templeton Global Bond Fund, managed by Michael Hasenstab, which has been in outflow mode for gosh, almost two years now, and that continues to you know hemorrhage a lot of assets. In Q3 alone, you know, it's one billion that came out of the fund, and it's you know the trajectory is just downwards continuously. Um, but I want to mention here, on the flip side of that, there is another uh, bond fund which is opposite to this, which is the PIMCO GIS Income Fund, which is a global flexible mandate, um, which is also in the top three of taking in the most inflows in Q3. Um, That is managed by Daniel Iverson, Alfred Morata and Josh Anderson. And it has taken in almost 2.5 billion. And because of its flexible mandate, you can see why investors may have gone there as well. But also the fund is 
now a low duration as well. I think it's something like one and a half years compared to the sector average, which is about six you know, six years in duration. So you can see, you know, inflation worries, interest rates may be rising, you know, they have put their portfolio in short duration, which, you know, I think this is why investors have probably gravitated towards this fund. But if you consider this fund lost so much money, you know, in March last year, you know, at the height of a COVID pandemic, I think it was around, yeah, 24 billion it lost in a month. It is a large fund, but that's a huge amount of assets to lose. Um, you know, in a month. But now um, you would think nothing happened to that fund because it is now back to pre-pandemic levels around $74 billion. And so it's still, you know, investors are still kept faith with that strategy and the managers. So that is, yeah, something that they've yeah. come in the flows before, but, you know, now they've reappeared in the top three. Angus, what, why are some funds taking in, in money and others are losing it at an alarming rate. Is it is it performance? Is it marketing? Is it service? What's doing this? Well, you know what? It's interesting, isn't it? I was listening to, to Nisha and Frank talking. Uh, as as always with these situations, there is there are multiple reasons, I think, and there are different there are different forces at play here. So there's, I mean, Nisha referenced a trend we've seen for a while uh, of. Uh, investors generally moving away from a star manager culture, increasingly looking for, you know, this this link to diversity, diversity of thought, all these things that we've talked about in the past. People are gradually moving away from the star, the individual star manager to, to a, a culture of mixed teams and feeling that that's, um, that's just a better way to make decisions. So I think that's part of it. But I also think there is, there's, your view on markets must have a, a must play a massive part in this. Uh, I was talking to an asset manager last week, uh, convinced that absolute return products were going to come back into vogue because we're moving into a, a, a period where equity market returns are not going to be as good as they have been. You know, hence people are going to be looking for downside protection. But Anita, when we spoke about this, you made the very valid point that absolute return strategies haven't protected the downside adequately in the past. So, um, all of that feeds into, okay, what are investors actually looking for? If I go into, uh, you know, whether it's the PIMCO GIS fund, my motivation for doing that might be different to somebody else's. It might be driven by markets. It might be driven by the manager, you know, or it might be driven by, um, yeah, I mean, any number of other factors. But I, I, I do think it's a complicated picture. And the other thing that I think plays into this that I'm hearing a lot about is a shift in approach to allocation, asset allocation generally, which, again, we've talked about on this uh, on this call before. But, um, you know, the old idea of your separate asset class buckets and the percentages that went into them has, has been gone for a long time. Uh, asset allocators work in a much more sophisticated way. You know, the rise of thematics has got to play into which funds get chosen because that changes the, that changes the dynamic of your portfolio construction. So, not a simple answer, I'm afraid, Richard, but I, I think uh, probably a more interesting one than a simple one. Yeah, I just want to add to that and what Angus just said as well, because just looking at flows, I think that's a good indicator of where you know investor sentiment has been and where they 
you know, the markets have been as well. And um, if we look at Q1, Q2, the majority of the money was going into Chinese equities and Chinese bonds. They were at the top, you know, for taking in flows. But you can see the sentiment shift, you know, suddenly in Q3 shifted away with everything that's happening with China at the moment. And in Asia, then you've got this flip back into these bond funds, traditional kind of assets, which were taken in the money pre-pandemic. So, you know, this short-termism is very short-term. The flips in and out. First, we had the ecology funds taken in, then the tech, then the healthcare, and now, then it was China, and now it's back into bonds again. So it's back to not normal. But you know, those funds which were taken in the money before are back in vogue again. I think that's right, and I think part of that also you, you see you see trends like, for example, the rise in highly specialised ETFs, which people are using as a, as a tactical tool. Um, so uh, that that that's a part of it, right? You can't talk about flows, I guess, without mentioning uh, size. Because just to point everyone, and I'll put it in the in the in the uh, rubric when we publish this, uh, really good piece yesterday by Simon Ever- Evan Cook on CCR, uh, who was a distinguished fund manager at Premier and now retired, and he was talking about you know. What is the ideal size for the fund, and what happens when it gets too too big? And you know, to summarise the story, there's no ideal size. It depends on where you are, what sector you are, and so on. But he says, you know, when money flows in, three things can happen. Uh, and one, and they've all got problems. One is you uh, buy. Obviously, you've got to buy more shares uh, as the money flows in, and that takes you above an optimum holding within a company. And everyone sees that and can can sort of push your, you know, can follow suit. The other one is that you buy more stocks. So you go from 40 stocks to 80 stocks, for example, and that's not ideal uh, anyway. Uh, and uh, the, the, the other one is, is to go up the market cap scale because it's, you know, more liquid shares. Uh, and that's not ideal because you might lose the performance in, that made you so good in the smaller caps. So uh, I don't know if anyone has any views on that, whether they they agree or disagree with Simon. Well, I think it's sort of a no-brainer, isn't it? The, the bigger a portfolio gets, the, the less nimble it can be for the reasons that you've just outlined, Richard. It's just the, the more money you've got to put to work, that in a way, the more limited your opportunities are. But one thing that I have had pointed out to me quite frequently by people who should know about these things, I've never tested this statistically to see if it's true, but I'm often told by experienced people that if you see one of these huge blockbuster funds start to lose assets in a big way, it almost never reverses. Once a big fund starts to get into outflow territory, uh, you know, more than just a more than just a very short term blip. Um, it, it very very rarely uh, gets back up to the heights that it previously achieved. I and mean, perhaps that Pimco fund might be an exception. Yeah, I think Misha, because also, yeah, it's it, that is short term. As I said, it was just one month. Mm, but what you've just said, you yeah. know, if you look at the Templeton Global Bond Fund, you know, Michael's has up. You know, that fund. You know, I haven't seen infl- Well, 
maybe tiny bits of inflows coming in, but it has been on a downward roll since it started losing big assets. And then if you look at the um, Aberdeen Standard uh, Gas Fund, that has been, you know, on a roll or downward roll, you know, down a hill with assets and that continues. Um, So, yeah, I think, you know, what you've heard is correct in that sense that, you know, once they do start losing money, a lot of other investors start losing faith with it as well. And maybe it's a herd effect, you know, that's why it goes down this way. But um, yeah, if you can't collect your assets quick enough, you will be on this downward spiral. So the other thing that I think is, sorry, Richard, but the other thing I think is still at play here, and and this feeds into a lot of what you're saying, Nisha, about these bond funds and and the slightly irregular pattern that we're seeing of flows from one to another, is the the hunt for yield is still very much a, a, a live issue for a lot of big buyers. Um, and and we're, and we're seeing that manifested in this kind of surge of interest in private assets, real assets, less liquid assets. You know, we're hearing an awful lot about asset managers bringing new products and strategies to the market that will make those areas uh, more accessible to wholesale and retail investors. And, and that's all about hunt for yield. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So... Uh, Maybe we can conclude that if you think the problems of success, i.e. getting more assets, are are difficult to cope with, then the problems of failure, i.e. your assets floating away, are even more difficult. So be careful what you wish for, I think, is the conclusion there. Uh, I'd like to thank Nisha, Angus and Frank for uh, joining us again, and we will be back in a fortnight with another edition of the CityWire Ratings Radar Show.